0: The search for identity, that which uh, suits best to this uh, real self that you're discovering. If you know yourself well enough, then you discover what you are best suited for, and then that is what makes you happiest, too. Self-actualization the making real of the inner self, and that means what you love, what you're interested in, what excites you, what fascinates you, and that is the cause outside yourself, which paradoxically then becomes a defining characteristic of the self. Welcome to the Maslow Peak Podcast, presented by Spring State Media Group. I'm your host, Brad Griffin. I've got a slight cold today, so if I sniffle or cough a little bit or sound a little funny, that'll be why. But our guest today is Forensic Psychologist Sabina Korea with NAPA Psychological Services. She also works at an emergency room. She's a doctor of psychology with master's degrees in both organizational behavior and forensic psychology. Uh, it's kind of an interesting mix, and I'm sure it's going to be fun to talk about. Sabina, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: I've always been fascinated by psychology, why we think what we think, why we feel the way we feel, and I'm uh, excited to talk to you about all this. I hope this is interesting for our listeners, because it's at least going to be interesting for me.
1: (laughs) Okay, I'll do what I can.
0: So, what does a forensic psychologist do?
1: Well, psychology is very broad, and forensic psychology is like a subdivision of psychology, but even then, it can be very broad. Um, Essentially, forensic psychology is any time the law intersects with psychology, And that could be in the court system, in the criminal justice system, um, family, civil law, uh, wars, military. It could be really any time that any legal aspect is involved with uh, psychological practice.
0: Okay. And you worked in an emergency room. So how does that kind of play into your work day to day? What's the forensic aspect of that?
1: Right. So the forensic aspect of that is in California, we have the 5150 Welfare Institutional Code, where if someone is gravely disabled or a danger to themselves or others, uh, we would essentially take their rights away so that they're not a, a harm to the community. And we provide care and provide safety for them. So in the emergency room, people present for various different things. And my job there is to go see those 5150 patients presenting in the ER and determine if they still meet criteria, if they um, need a 5150 hold placed, which is a 72-hour involuntary hold, and um, if they need to be admitted into the hospital.
0: Okay. All right. I have some more questions about this, but uh, we'll get there because I, I think that's going to be a deep dive once we, once we finally get okay. there. So how did you originally decide to go down this path of psychology?
1: Well, uh, you and I know each other from high school. Indeed. Back then, um, we won't say how long ago that was. um, Too long. I was five foot nothing (laughs) and about 110 pounds, and I thought I wanted to be a police officer. Um, And so I was in this uh, police explorer group, and I realized, wow, I am uh, itty-bitty, and it's going to take a lot (laughs) for me to have this command presence that is required for a police officer. And I saw the difficulties of women in the field at that time. And so I did more administrative duties. And I had a friend who um, was involved in an officer-involved shooting. He uh, had someone pull a gun on him and he shot and killed the person and was back to work in three days. Because they have a three-day mandatory time off while there's an investigation. And then they come back to work like nothing happened. Oh, wow. And that just blew my mind. I was like, wait, but you killed somebody on Friday. (laughs) Wednesday, and you're here like nothing happened. Oh, my God. And so uh, that's kind of what got my mind thinking about the support system that goes for first responders and for all these people that, you know, have extraordinary careers that put their lives in danger. Um, And I also was a transcriptionist for a um, detective who was investigating child abuse cases, primarily child sexual abuse. And I'm here listening to these horrific cases, knowing what she's doing on her daily, you know, course of duties and and my own eight-hour day of listening to these crimes and I thought this is this is insane it just blew my mind that this is somebody's job like it's nothing and and there's so much more about how this affects people and I really just became passionate about um, providing the psychological service for for these first responders.
0: Wow yeah it's crazy when you think about all of that I mean all of what happens to children what happens to people that see traumatic things, it's, it's crazy. And the support system is sort of there, but it's also uncomfortable to talk about. So I think people don't like to bring it up or just want to keep on trucking. And it's like, no, this, this really affected you. You know, this is something you gotta, you gotta kind of work through.
1: Right. And in the culture is very machismo. And so, it, you know, it kind of is counterintuitive, you know, to, to talk about those things.
0: It's crazy. You mentioned, uh, being a small female, trying to be a police officer, uh, our, our younger daughter was home sick yesterday and I stayed home with her. And while she was taking a nap, I watched that end of watch with uh Jay Gyllenhaal and Michael Pena. And there's a new recruit police officer who's a smaller woman. And she ends up getting like pummeled in this movie by mm-hmm. a perpetrator. And I remember I was watching it and I was thinking, Oh my God, like I, why would any woman ever sign up for this job? Especially one of smaller stature. So it's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, yeah, I imagine that's, that's a tough road to go down.
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely.
0: So I guess that kind of answers the other question of what you wanted to be when you grew up. Was it always police officer? Or?
1: Uh, originally, I thought I wanted to be an attorney. And so I did mock trial and realized that my personality, just I'm just not um, adversarial in that way. So I mixed that. Thought I would be a police officer. Didn't match my personality either um, for the reasons we just mentioned. And then, so yeah, I just kind of went down the psychology route and stuck with it. I knew pretty early on and high school. that this is what I was going to do. did some research in the education. It's really insane how much education is involved for this degree. But so, yeah, you know, 13 years later, uh, I finished all my education and and now I'm doing my job.
0: Now, how did the organizational behavior mix into that?
1: Two-part. So if you did an extra so there was a second master's degree that was built into the program and they had coursework that was due the summer so it kind of worked out for financial aid reasons Um, (laughs) just a little bonus
0: degree that wasn't that hard to get I I follow I follow
1: exactly but also it was a whole other avenue of psychology that one is actually quite lucrative it's Mm -hmm. the most um most financially lucrative of all the psychology field and it's just fascinating to see how psychology it it works itself out in Organizations the culture that is provided in an organization and how change affects people on on the individual level But also on like a mass production level. So I found that really fascinating
0: Hmm. All right So you mentioned your colleague that had the perpetrator pull the gun on him and and ended up ending the perp's life was that the specific instance that you realized this is what I need to do I need to help these people or was there another specific instance that was like this is this is the path
1: that was pretty much it um, and it, and it kind of all came around at a certain you know year in my life um, I've always been kind of this a long-term planner and so I needed to have my you know career trajectory and Uh, I was working the front desk behind a bulletproof glass window at like 17, uh, registering sex offenders and narcotic offenders and arson offenders. And also I would do these vehicle releases and for people whose cars were impounded and the sergeant would come up next to me and sign the release. And their gun was literally two inches from my head or like they're next to me two feet over making copies. And the gun is like, you know, so close to me. And I'm like, this is this is nuts that there's like a Glock two inches from my face, and this is my job, <laughs> and I'm seventeen. Just another um, day.
2: <laughs> just another
1: day at the office, and that always just kind of blew my mind that this is something different. This isn't a typical office, and these aren't typical lives that these people lead. And um, it just really per- piqued my interest, and um, and that's kind of what got it going. It was all kind of around the same time in my adolescence.
0: Yeah, you mentioned uh, the child abuse cases, and. Um... I remember having a conversation with a friend. I was describing the trouble that another friend was having trying to adopt three boys. And he was talking about, you know, the things he'd been going through and trying to, you know, all the interviews and everything. it's like he was talking about how you can just have a kid and it's your kid. But if you want to adopt it, you know, it's so much more work. And the other friend was like, why is it such a big deal? Why does it have to be such a thing? And I said, well, Mm -hmm. they have to make sure you're not trying to adopt them so that you can have sex with them. And he was just like, I never would have even thought of that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I just got an article this morning that popped up in my news feed saying in Canada, this huge child pornography ring was a, was a huge bust. And they just busted like over 150 people ranging from doctors to oh uh, lawyers, everywhere in between providing this mass child pornography ring for international customers, if you will, essentially pedophiles and and releasing all these children. It's just really horrific. Some of the things that that happened and it's been fascinating to me to see the depths of how dark uh, the human behavior and the human mind can Mm be. Um, And so something that was always a challenge for me was sitting across from someone who has done really evil things and seeing how much evil, I can tolerate and how much into the abyss I can look into before I blink.
2: Wow
0: Wow, I mean I I always thought it was messed up this stuff happens to little kids But once you become a parent, you know, there's it it totally changes your outlook on I mean, at least for me It did because I had no hardly any experience with kids But it totally changes your outlook and there is just this I describe it as this infinite universe of despair That you did not know existed until you have children like, you know, you hear about someone you know, someone's wife passing away. And if I think about that, it's like, you know, that would be terrible if Amanda died, you know, if my wife passed away, that would be terrible. But when you hear about messed up stuff happening to kids, if I allow myself to think about that happening to my kids for more than 10 or 15 seconds, I'm probably gonna start crying. And it's like, there's just this universe of sadness that you Mm -hmm. did not know existed. And just to see, you mentioned the, you know, the depths of human depravity and the blackness, just everything that's come out in the last couple of years between the gymnastics scandal and the swimming scandal and you know the thing you're talking about it's 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 everywhere and it's I can't believe how many people are into just this darkness this this stuff that's out there it's it's shocking
1: yeah and and I think what's most shocking is as a parent in a society there's something you can really do to stop it you can try to prevent it by education and, and being vigilant but that's the really scary thing is that these things could happen at any moment, you know, any, any time. And, and that's kind of, the, that's kind of, I, I try not to let my mind go there oh my too God. much either.
0: Like in our neighborhood, we, we moved into the neighborhood that our girls will go to school at. And it's, it's literally around the corner. It might be, it might be 200 yards. And the thought of them walking to school by themselves just gives me the chills. Like it's, oh, yeah. it's 200 yards. Right. I, I walked way further than that to school, you know? And just to think about that, it's just, yeah, and it's so, oh my God.
1: It's so different. Like when we were younger and my husband tells me stories he grew up in the country and how they would all just run around and, and, you know, past dark and, and through, you know, orchards and, and that we would just never even wrap our heads around that. You know, we won't even let our child, you know, take two steps on the sidewalk without us. Yeah. And yeah, different times. And it's hard to say if these things always happened and if now we're just aware of it more. Or is it just getting worse? I don't know. It's it's super dark.
0: Yeah, it could be both. I mean, it could be we know more about it now because the Internet, but it may have also opened people up to thinking, you know, this is OK. You know, if all these other people are into this, I'm also into this, you know, and that's OK. And I mean, I know there's a big debate. And I mean, this goes into capital punishment and our prison system and everything. But, you know, rehabilitation versus incarceration, you know, like what what things can we bring the human mind back from and what things are, you yeah. know, sicknesses. And I had a psychology teacher in college that said, you know, from where I stand, you know, being into little kids is a sickness. Like, you will never recover from that. You will always be into that. What's your opinion on kind of rehabilitation? I mean, not just for, you know, pedophiles, but overall, you know, kind of where do you stand on all of that?
1: Mm. I mean, that's a really deep question overall. And um, it has so many layers to it. I think essentially, You know, the first five years are the most important. If those years are damaged with, um, like you said, depravity and severe neglect, it's really hard to recover from that, even at an early age. And then if you compound that with adolescence and poverty and street violence and and things like that, further abuse from parents, maybe they're using drugs or whatnot, essentially those are the cards that are dealt for that person. And it's really difficult to change that. Especially when all your, you know, quote loved ones are doing, are are, are committing the abuse or who are providing that um, platform of violence for your environment. Essentially, that becomes their norm, mm-hmm. and um, that's their baseline. And so, to change that at an adult level or an adolescent level, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the harm's already been done, and also. I don't want to seem hopeless because I, I wouldn't do <laughs> yeah. it if I didn't think that there was hope. Right. But it is excruciatingly difficult to make even just you know, any bit of progress. And you think about the cycle of change, these people are not even in the pre-contemplation stage. Mm-hmm. Just to get them to even consider for a moment an alternative behavior – not even in a lifestyle, but just a behavior, just the thought of, of doing something different than what you're doing is a huge, um, that, w- that would be a huge success, yeah. um, in therapy. And it's just, it takes so much longer to undo things that have happened in those formative years.
0: And it's so complicated between, you know, this person might also have chemical problems, you know, chemical imbalances and trying to get through all of that to figure out how can we help this person? I, I don't envy you. I I don't envy your work.
1: You know, I think there's something for everybody. You know, there's a place for everybody in in our society. And I love what I do. I love being able to participate in the containment. Something that I really like is uh, in psychology, there's a thing called malingering. And I'm not sure if you've ever heard of this, but it's essentially someone who's feigning mental illness for Mm -hmm. secondary gain. So for example, it's, easier to be in a hospital than it is a prison. And so sometimes those um, offenders will fake mental illness to have a better lifestyle or to get out of of their, um, the sentence that they're facing or their uh, charges that they're facing. And so to be able to pinpoint and say, no, you don't have mental illness. You need to go back to jail or prison and serve your term. That is fulfilling for me. Um, And, and also to be able to evaluate someone and say that they're a danger um, it Helps me reconcile the thought of that. It's hopeless because it is providing a sense of prevention That's just how I choose to think about it
0: No, and that's a question I had written down was how do you tell if people are lying? So it's interesting that you kind of <laughs> go there So h- what are the steps to trying to figure out this person really has this or maybe they have this But they're not exhibiting those signs right now versus this person is clearly mm-hmm. lying to me is is there kind of a cheat sheet to that?
1: <laughs> Definitely. Uh, yeah, I mean, really fantastic stories are just really unrealistic and, and unbelievable. Those are, you know, oftentimes those are the ones who are fading or exaggerating. Sometimes people who have been mentally ill in the past or even from substance abuse, which mimics things that naturally occur in our brain they can pull from those memories and those make it extra difficult because at one time they were true, but are they true at this moment? Hmm. So it's, it's a number of things where you look at the current functioning. So a lot of collateral data. So I often work in hospital settings where there's lots of nurses and lots of other staff who are putting eyes on this person. And it's really difficult to feign mental illness 24 hours a day hmm. you will slip up and we will catch you. Okay. And that's how people are caught essentially.
0: All right. So that kind of leads into my next question. So what's uh, basic daylight for you?
1: Now, um, it's actually a night. I work graveyard shift okay. in, in the pit of the ER. So I essentially uh, go to work at 11 p.m. And I get up. And I leave at 7 a.m. So when everyone's kind of tucked away, starting their REM cycles, I'm getting my Starbucks and heading out. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it really varies. That's something that I like about my job is that you don't know what you're going to get. Every day is different. Um, there's no, nothing mundane about my work, which I really um, appreciate. So oftentimes I get people who are brought in. Um, I work in Berkeley, it's a very eccentric population. Okay. Uh, I've got a lot of UC Berkeley students who maybe are having their first psychotic break. Or use too much drugs on spring break Hmm. and uh, come in and, you know, they're maybe stressed out or they're um, psychotic from the drugs or from a first break of mental illness. And so I have to determine if they're gravely disabled, if they can care for themselves, what their support network is like a lot of overdoses. Also, we get a lot of lingering there too. So um, in the Bay Area, it can be very cold at night. So the homeless population can come in seeking shelter. Mm -hmm. And there are buzzwords that they've come to learn that if they say these particular words, it can force at least the entry, you know, the attending MD forces their hands to initiate a 5150. Then they call me, which is essentially a specialist for Mm -hmm. mental health to come out and determine if this is real or not. So Yeah, to determine if they actually are a danger, if they really are suicidal or if they're just saying that to get out of the rain for Mm -hmm. the night because they're homeless.
0: Right. And I know the homeless population, I mean, the statistics you hear is that, you know, a majority of them do have some form of mental illness. And, you know, 50 years ago, we were institutionalizing these people, Mm -hmm. you know, we were locking them away, our families didn't want to deal with them anymore. And we just give them to the state and let the state deal with it. And You know, that Mm -hmm. as we've kind of changed as a culture away from that, now these folks are on the street and it's, I don't know what the solution is, you know, to, it's, it's a social issue. It's a cultural issue. It's a family issue. It's sort of private, but then they become wards of the state, which makes it a public thing. I mean, it's, it's so complicated. I I don't know what the solution Mm is.
1: Right. And, and I take it so seriously taking someone's rights away, especially if they have not committed a crime, you know, once you commit a crime, kind of all bets are off, but And and that's kind of the thing is that a lot of times it's left until they commit a crime and then the criminal justice system takes them. Um, And that's really unfortunate as well because they wouldn't have committed a crime if they had the proper medication in the community. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, right now it ends up that the correctional system ends up being uh, that hospital, that asylum that that used to be, and now it's just a a prison in so many senses of the word. Um, But, you, you know, there's a lot of comorbidity with substance abuse which does not help <laughs> the situation because, you know, you could be, you can have schizophrenia, you can have uh, an acute psychosis from methamphetamine, which is really popular right now, mm. or, or you can have, um, you know, substance induced, you know, perpetual schizophrenia because you have just used way too many drugs. And so, so yeah, it, get, it really gets muddy, the mental health component and the forensic population, because it's never just one thing. Right. It's usually a smorgasbord of abuse and, You know, maybe they were born with drugs in their system, which just sets them off, you know, with a bad deck of cards to begin with. Um, And so, yeah, it gets very complicated. Um, So that's always um, an enigma to me. And I always I think of it like a rubrics cube. I like to kind of take the problem, figure it out and then and then pass it along. And so that's always what's fascinated me about, um, I guess, each psychological presentation that I see.
0: Right. On your website you mentioned that you deal with uh, gender dysphoria and I know that as time has gone on our culture is getting more more and more accepting of folks that you know may have these feelings and mm-hmm. you and I grew up in the same place you know this wasn't something that was on our radar <laughs> when we were young and definitely not accepted in the culture we grew up in but you know as I as I've gotten older and eventually you realize you know I, I don't have these feelings and I can't marginalize someone because I don't understand that, you know, I never chose to feel this way about my feelings. There's gotta be another option. You know, there's gotta be other feelings out there that I don't understand. And Mm -hmm. coming to terms with that and accepting these people has been, you know, accepting people's opinions about a lot of things as I've gotten older has been great, but Mm -hmm. it's complicated, you know, and I'm, I'm curious as to what your thoughts are and how you kind of help folks deal with this. I mean, I don't want this to sound insensitive, (laughs) listeners, so I'm going to try to explain this the best I can because I've had this conversation with a couple people. But, you know, you're seeing in the news a lot about the – this is getting younger and younger that kids are dealing with this. And, you know, when my three- or four-year-old says, I'm a dinosaur, you know, every day at some point you have to say, no, daughter, you're not a dinosaur. You know, but this child may also feel – you know, I'm not the gender that, you know, I'm not my biological gender. I feel differently. How does a parent deal with that? Like, how does a parent help this child come to terms with that? And how would you explain to the skeptics that that's not the same thing as I'm a dinosaur?
1: Yeah. So I
0: know that's a lot lot to (laughs) unpack. I'm sorry. So uh, no,
1: no, no. Uh, Yeah. I mean, there's so many layers to these things.
0: I'm trying to help people think about how their kids might actually feel this way and that, you know, they're not wrong and they're not crazy and they're not making it up. That's kind of what I'm trying to do to how to, how to help people better be accepting of these viewpoints. And
1: Mm -hmm. no, I, I think a lot of it. And like you said, growing up, we didn't grow up with that level of acceptance. We grew up in this Bible Belt of California and people are still upset if they have to dial one for English and two for Spanish. So it, I think where you're raised and how you're raised in your household can really um, determine how you think about things and your worldview. And um, I think ultimately the the response I would give is that acceptance. I can tell you about a case if you want that got me interested in it. Sure, um, sure. It is dark. Okay. <laughs> Um, So in my pre-doc, I did at uh, Vacaville Psychiatric Program, which is a hybrid of a state hospital and a prison. And essentially, it was the highest level of care for mental health for the prisoners. And I had a patient who was there for a major depressive disorder, recurrent and severe. And he was there for what was opined to be a suicide attempt. He had um, tried to sever his testes off, his genitalia off. Okay. And when I saw him, it was in a treatment meeting. He was asking for therapy and he hadn't got it yet because I was an intern at the time. And so I just arrived and he was wanting to be discharged back to the prison because he felt like he wasn't getting the help that he needed. And he was a white supremacist with uh, swastikas all over his body. He had kill tattoos all over his face and neck and arms because he murdered several people. And he was the uh, basically the Aryan Brotherhood shot caller of that unit in the prison. And so I said, Well, I'm here. I can do therapy. That's, that's what I'm here for. So I met with him the next week. And he tells me, We sit down, I introduce myself, and he says, I'm gay and i want to be a woman i'm a woman and he wants to transition and i was not expecting that because right. that is so against the culture right. just by saying that he would automatically have what's called a green light on him mm-hmm. which means that they his peers would have to murder him as part of their their culture So I did some work with him and I did some research and there was no, we had a sex offender specialist, but he specialized in pedophilia, not in um, Mm -hmm. sexual identity disorders. And so I did a lot of research because I had to get competent very quick um, to be able to help this person. And it turns out that he didn't have major depressive disorder. He had gender dysphoria Mm -hmm. and he hated his body and the way that he looked and and there's so many other cases, very similar. Um, he hated his genitalia so much that he tried to uh, take them off with a razor blade. Wow! And to imagine the depths of internal pain to inflict that kind of physical pain onto se- on your own body really put things into perspective for me. And um, it had a lot to do with self self hatred, um, the way that he was, you know, raised, and and he knew early on that he Um, was essentially a girl, and he would wear dresses at a very young age, makeup at a very young age. But because of the white supremacist environment, he wasn't able to do that. So he essentially swung in the opposite direction. The pendulum swung in the opposite direction. He became this ultra machismo Mm -hmm. person and and took his hate for himself out onto the African-American community. So it turned out there were a few other transgender patients on the unit, and there were four, and out of those four, three of them had also tried to sever their testes wow. because of the gender dysphoria. And so I realized very quickly that this is a thing, and it's real. And I think now with the awareness and acceptance that has been brought up in our community, people are—they feel safer. They're still at tremendous risk for hate crimes mm-hmm. and a number of other things, but it's safer now than it was. And and he's. From what I've heard, because I'm no longer working there, but I've heard that he's happily transitioned to uh, a yard and he's living as a woman. Wow. That patient.
0: There's hope for everybody. Yeah. Hopefully. So when you tell people you're a psychologist, what's the most common reaction?
1: can you read my mind or something like that? (laughs) Um, They think I'm like law and order SCU or something. Yeah. Or, or uh, it gets good. Yeah. I mean, I do forensic psychology. So a lot of times people just ask what that is and they're like, Oh, okay. And then like (laughs) kind of get creeped out. But yeah, um, typically if that's it, I I try not to talk about my work too much in my personal life just because of, uh, I like to keep it very separate and very boundary oriented. So
0: that's fair. Uh,
1: Yeah. I don't talk about it too much.
0: Any preconceived misconceptions about psychologists that you'd like to clean up once and for all?
1: Oh, Freud is so outdated. Like, we're not (laughs) all about sex and (laughs) all that stuff. No, that's so outdated.
0: Okay. All right, there you go. You mentioned looking into the darkness of human psyche and seeing how long you can look until you blink. Yeah. Any blink moments that really stand out? Any times you were legitimately scared or anything that... Truly shocked you any anything you can talk about or that you'd you care to talk about?
1: First of all, I don't ever let myself be scared at work Um, And when I'm like the only time I had ever become kind of frightened I I did leave that job. So yeah at that same facility that I was mentioning about the transgender patient I was on a unit that was the only unit allowed to house the condemned population Essentially meaning that they're on death row. Okay And so I thought I was badass. you know, I could handle a lot. And (laughs) (laughs) I picked this this internship because they had a serial murder um, research program and reading about it and studying it is all fine until you're face-to-face with a serial murderer. I imagine. And yeah, and so (laughs) I thought I was so cool because uh, we were admitting a serial murderer and I thought I was getting some mad street cred under my belt, and then it was my turn to ask him a question, and the hairs on the back of my neck stood straight up, well, and man. I was petrified. <laughs> and um, I think I asked my one question, and I didn't say anything else. So I could say that I did it, but that was the time that I was, I was pretty spooked. It was in a, a team setting, so I was not alone with this patient, but the the people who are, who are truly powerful with violence. They don't even
0: have to say anything, and they're scary. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's a little crazy.
1: Yeah.
0: I also wanted to ask you about, it seems like a lot of the mass shootings that happen in our country are perpetrated by folks with no no history of mental illness, no, you know, they've never been arrested for anything, they've never, you know, they've not always seen a psychologist, you know, there's not someone that's been in their life that's seen the signs of these things. Is there any way we can prevent these things from happening just across the board without finding a way to hopefully interpret some people's actions as being capable of this. I mean, how do, how do we prevent these things from happening when people lawfully buy weapons have no history of things like this happening?
1: Right. Yeah. I think it kind of goes back to these global things, these global thing, global issues of our system being broken. How do we repair that? Um, Acceptance in general, because sometimes, especially the high school ones, they have a severe history of bullying um, and they don't feel accepted in their community uh, for whatever reason. And so I think that that's one area, just kind of uh, teaching and preaching tolerance, essentially, um, as a society uh, for differences and also educating the public about mental illness, warning signs. These are huge issues that are systemic and so difficult to point out and with each shooting Usually there's like a psychological autopsy that happens. So you really for each case look through No two shootings are alike. I guarantee you there are individual circumstances that have led up to this Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a life path that has happened for this shooter that has brought them to where they are and Identifying each case is unique So I don't know that there's a one-size-fits-all because no two people are the same. They haven't lived the same life. Um, But I think overall just providing a community of education, awareness, and and acceptance and tolerance is is really the cornerstone. But, you know, yes, my husband, he'll say I'm too liberal. So uh, (laughs) it could just be my NorCal (laughs) roots coming out now.
0: (laughs) So you've seen all manner of depravity. You've heard about all kinds of people's problems. Um, you've see, you've looked into the darkness, what do you want to say to your fellow humans? What kind of hope can you give us? Uh, how should we treat each other? What messages do you have for your fellow man?
1: <laughs> I would say find little things that make you happy, little things that bring you peace, and just be aware of, of that. And maybe it's something simple like uh, drinking tea or going for a walk or, or little things that you find pleasure in. Hold on to those and, and build on to those. And in that you can find inner strength and inner love for yourself.
0: Awesome. What's been your biggest triumph so far professionally? Any triumphs or any specific cases that worked out a certain way that you're proud of?
1: I guess the thing I've been most proud of is that you never know how you're going to react in a situation until you're in that situation. And I worked at a state hospital until very recently, I guess it's been a year now. So not as recently. And, um, you know, like we mentioned before, I was, I always thought I was too small to be a police officer. I've never been in a fight in my life, never done any drug in my life. Super square girl. And at the state hospital, one of my colleagues was being brutally assaulted. And I was the first one to see it happen. And I ran over there and got involved in the fight and tried to pull this drug dealer off of my coworker. Wow. And um, I got a little bit injured in, the, in that fight, as did the RN that, that jumped in with me. But I think that's been the most proud moment because... I never have been in a situation like that, and I didn't know how I would react. But I was glad that I was able to react in a way that, looking back, I'm proud of myself, and I I feel like I made a difference in that moment.
0: Awesome. How about any disappointments, any failures, anything that hadn't gone the way you hoped it would?
1: I wish we made more money. That would be <laughs> nice <laughs> for as much school as because all we those go
0: degrees, to. yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, That's an honest know, answer. <laughs> <laughs> But when you like what you do, it doesn't feel like a job. So I can honestly say that I do really enjoy and I'm passionate about what I do. And so in that regards I'm um, I'm really happy to go to work every day and it and it doesn't feel like a mundane job that I hate. So All right. I guess you can't really buy that.
0: Well, and I don't think there's anything mundane about your job, so
1: <laughs> either.
0: Are there fifty one fifties every day? Like is there any day that you go to work and you don't have anything to do?
1: Uh no. Yeah, there's 5150s all the time. Wow. And then I also work in another hospital where um, it's the inpatient unit. So if they do get admitted, they go to the psychiatric unit. And what I do there is if they get too violent, they're put in restraints. There's five, up to five points. So each each limb can be strapped down to a bed and then your chest as well. And that makes five points. Hmm. And so, yeah, I go do the orders for that if someone needs to be in restraints or in seclusion, which is like the modern day straitjacket, essentially. Right. right. So. I do that um, when I'm not in the ER.
0: All right. So there's always something.
1: (laughs) Always something going on.
0: Yeah. Going forward, how do you define success for yourself?
1: I feel so honored to have achieved as much as I have already. At this point, I don't even know what else more I could ask for. I'm so pleased um, with my trajectory. I guess I would just say a house full of a few more kids. (laughs) <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I'd like to do more high profile evaluations in the court system, incompetent to stand trial or not guilty by reason of insanity And just to kind of be able to pick and choose what I do a little bit more, um, in my private practice. So that's just getting off the ground. So I'd like to see that sprout up a bit more and, and build up that reputation in, in the Bay area. But yeah, I feel so grateful for the things that I've been able to accomplish in my, in my early career.
0: You mentioned uh, some high-profile cases. Uh, what's your opinion on the 100 or whatever uh, mental health professionals that wrote a letter to the New York Times about our and President? Oh.
1: <laughs> uh, I would say I'm in agreement. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I will leave it at that.
0: There you go. That's that's fair. <laughs> What do you think you'd be doing if this hadn't worked out? If you had gotten into the classes, you didn't like them. If you were scared, you know, if um, if it didn't work out, what do you think you'd be pursuing?
1: You know what? I did not have a plan B. So I'm kind of a ball-to-the-wall kind of girl, and I didn't have a plan B for that, which helped me because there are some difficult times. It takes You have to have a lot of persistence and perseverance, mm-hmm. and um, i never had a plan B. So my alternative was my family were grape pickers. Uh, my grandparents were migrant workers, and if I didn't go to school, I would have ended up picking grapes in the fields. And so to me, that wasn't an alternative that I could accept, so I just pushed through but I think if I had a dream career, I would love to be a photographer for the National Geographic and just okay. fly around the world and take pictures of exotic and, and rare animals and, and learn to scuba dive and take pictures of sharks or something.
0: <laughs> Sounds like a good hobby. <laughs> There's still time. All right. So on, on a lighter note, what do you like to do for fun outside of work?
1: Oh, I'm the president of Napa Moms, okay. and um, I love hosting playdates and helping moms um, find their tribe and just finding cool things to do with kids in the area. Find
0: their tribe? Is that what you said?
1: Yeah. Moms need tribes, man. We need our pack of mommies. It, 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 motherhood is it's a whole other journey, and um, you really need a sisterhood to kind of support you through that. And so I love helping women connect with other women and, and supporting each other and uh, having fun raising our kids.
0: All right. Anything you're excited about right now, any books you just read movies, you just watched shows you're watching uh, music you've been listening to anything you want people to know about?
1: No, (laughs) I feel so boring right now. Um, I only get to watch like three shows. Um, so like Homeland just finished. I'm like obsessed with that. Um, I'm obsessed with our current political climate. I like cannot stop watching <laughs> MSNBC and okay. CNN. I can tell you everything that's going on with our country right now. I'm like obsessed, like even with international politics. Um, I'm just like, I think it's given so many people political anxiety yes. <laughs> from, from our president, <laughs> like from the current situation. So um, I guess I'm one of those that's just become glued to my iPad watch streamlining CNN.
0: Yes. Yes. With all we've talked about, what inspires you to keep going? How do you keep yourself motivated?
1: Again, I think it goes back to loving what you do. And I love being able to see even just a brief change in someone. Um, I often come across people in their lowest points. Uh, I love being able to help people when they're not able to help themselves and to see improvement in the quality of lives of people. That is just so powerful. I did a forensic fellowship for my postdoc and I worked with child abuse victims. And just to be able to be that adult who gives who gives that child a voice and, and to tell them that it wasn't their fault to see the impact that makes on them. It's so rewarding and so enriching. And, um, I feel so grateful to be able to play a small part in someone's life.
0: Awesome. If you could go back to the start of the journey, anything you'd tell yourself.
1: I probably would have went maybe to medical school. Okay. (laughs) It's the same amount of time. Um, but I don't know. Um, I think about that sometimes, but then I think that the connection and the, the nuts and bolts of what I do, it's not the same. So then I think I'm, I'm really satisfied. Yeah, I'm very pleased.
0: Any last words of advice? Life, art, mental health, anything?
1: Step out of your comfort zone and learn something new about something you didn't know about a person or a culture or community and find ways, take time, even five minutes, to do the things that give you peace and strength.
0: Well, that's great advice. Sabina, thanks for coming on the show. This has been really interesting. Um, I've always been, like I said in the lead-in, I've always been fascinated by our minds and what they can do and what they allow us to do and what we allow them to do. And to hear your stories from inside the emergency room and your opinions on things, it's it's really interesting. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So Sabina's practice can be found on the web at nps-ca.com. And if you're acting the fool in Berkeley after 11 p.m. sometime, you might see (laughs) her. This has been the Maslow Peak Podcast presented by Spring State Media Group. Our producer is Jesse Edmond. If you like what you heard today, you can find all of our episodes on the web at themaslowpeak.com, where you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, or SoundCloud, and have new episodes automatically pushed to you. If you can rate and review the show, that helps us a lot. You can also check out our Instagram at The Maslow Peak, on Facebook at The Maslow Peak, and also on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and you'll be hearing from us next week.